Hey everyone, welcome again to the Rotten Horror Picture Show, the horror movie podcast where we talk about films off of the 200 best movies of all time list by RottenTomatoes.com. My name is Clay McCormick and with me as always is Amanda. Amanda, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm good. I have some breaking news that we need to address. The uh, the last <laughs> okay. episode, I think it was the last episode, we mentioned mm-hmm. that uh, let me let the right one in, which was previously not on this list, is now yes. on the list. Yes. Well, uh, our list is ever changing and ever evolving, like the Red Dragon, <laughs> and more changes have happened. So eventually, Ooh. we will end up we will end up redoing numbers. And the number oh my God. that I'm mo- <laughs> now looking forward to redoing, because it has changed, is number 101, which was previously The Shining, and was right. the uh, sort of the barometer that we use to kind of judge these movies is, is it better or worse than The Shining, depending on yes. where in the list it belongs to be, or uh, deserves okay. to be. <laughs> number 101 is now The Color Out of Space. <laughs> And The Shining has been bumped down to 103. No, I can't. Yeah. I I don't. I refuse. So, uh, yeah, this is a really interesting list. Continues to be that way. I wish they had just bumped it up one to put it at number 100, and then it would have just made things a lot easier for us. I mean, it also would have made a lot more sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, okay. So, so, so 101 is now Color Out of Space. Mm-hmm. Which we went to see together and yep. is a fun, kind of kooky, crazy movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then this bumped it to 103. Yep. So it bumped it down two spots. Mm-hmm. So what? what is now between the two? Bone Tomahawk, which is... Uh I don't even know if I would call that a horror movie, really. But um, I personally wouldn't. That's another. That's another one we've seen together. Yeah, and I enjoyed for what it was, but I I just don't even understand why it's on this list. Yeah, what's you know? I think this is going to end up turning into like trading card collecting for me, where we're going to eventually <laughs> hit a movie. Like, there's going to be a movie on here that I'm really looking forward to doing. And at some yeah. point before we get to it, it is going to be removed from the list or something, or it's going to be bumped to, it's going to be bumped to a uh, a number that we haven't done yet. That's what it's going to be. So like, uh. so The Shining has been bumped to a hun- number one hundred and three, which we have not done, yet. which we have not done yet. So technically, we can't do number one hundred and three because we already did that movie. <laughs> So do we just have to swap and do 101 again? I think I think it's just going to have to be. My first thought was we could just sub it out and be like, oh, we do the Colorado Space. But it might change again. So I think it's probably we'll just have to hit the randomizer again and uh, be mad about it. So it's <laughs> I mean, I'm really, really good at being mad about things. So yeah, I'm, I'm it's, on board with it's going to be really frustrating if someone ever like looks at our list of episodes and realizes <laughs> that we've gone through like 400 <laughs> movies, but we've never hit like 10 numbers. Yeah. So, you know, it is what it is. I mean, al- already somebody can, you know, go back and listen to our fairly limited back catalog and there are some incorrect numbers on there now. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, look look forward to that, I guess. Um, but anyway, <laughs> speaking of uh, questionable numbering on this list, uh, today's movie we're watching is uh, number 95. Hold on. Let me just double check to make sure that's actually what it is still. 
It is. Number 95. <laughs> That's what it was when we started. Number 95 with an 88% adjusted score of 94.583, 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which we can get into this more later, but that is criminally low on the scale. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you, uh, we, we had both seen this before. We wa- actually watched this uh, yes. last night, which whenever you're listening to this was probably like six months ago. Uh, we did it. We did a little uh, watch along with some of the Penske podcast patrons, which I thought was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it was awesome. And had you had you seen this before? You had, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a few years. I would say it's probably been like six or seven years since mm-hmm. the last time I've seen it. But but I've seen it at least two or three times before. I was going to say this seems like based on what I know about you only from the podcast. <laughs> If I'm if I'm using that as my only barometer, ignoring our entire friendship yeah. outside of the internet, yeah. But even I guess a little bit of that, I I would I would peg this as a movie that you had seen like a ton of times. You know how it's like there's always like no I've seen I've seen The Exorcist 167 times and it keeps getting funnier every time I see it. Like I, I assumed it would be one of those like you went through a period when you were uh, a teenager where you watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre all the time. I'm just uh, trying to get really. you to see more like a psychopath, like Patrick Bateman, like you did to me. So, <laughs> well, I think I did that with with our uh, with our group of patrons last night by mm. uh, continuing to assert that the house of the um, uh, shall we call them the Leatherface family. I just kept being like, "Wow, it's like my house." Yes. Yes. I mean, I've got I've You're got a taxidermied bat. A full articulated bat skeleton, a coyote skull, some alligator teeth. And that's maybe uh, that's probably why I assumed that this would be like a favorite of yours. <laughs> but I mean, well, no, I, I think I came to it a little late. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I think the first time I saw it was like post college. Oh, actually. really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So in the last few years, I've I've seen it a bunch of times. But you know what? That movie that I've seen like a hundred times or whatever you know which one that is for me uh the crow (laughs) close i mean close in terms of like yes i have seen that a lot but the one i'm thinking of is actually very different um the silence of the lambs okay that tracks that's that's yeah i would say that's in the same ballpark as as this so (laughs) as this i wasn't wrong no you're not wrong yeah, um for me I've I've always loved this one for a long time. Um that didn't make any sense. Uh <laughs> I watched this for the first time probably in high school and this was this was like I I've talked before about how great grimy VHS tapes are for these kind of movies. Mm-hmm. This is like the king of those. Um Oh yeah. This was one of the original, uh, as they called in England, the Video Nasties, which was the list of, I can't remember how many, like 38 banned films uh, that were... De- that's a great, that's a great term. Yeah, it's very cool. They were uh, they were deemed illegal, and so uh, trade tape trading turned into people copying copies of copies and copies and stuff. So you'd end up getting this you know, eighth generation copy of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, and this this is a movie where that actually makes it better. Because uh, the first time I saw it was a VHS, like an old VHS um, mm-hmm. on an older television. And it was awesome because it adds <laughs> so much to the uh, uh, 
realness of this and like the the um, v- how visceral everything is because it, yeah. it it makes it feel a lot more like a found footage film almost. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a little bit of almost I don't want to say like a documentary feel yeah. to it. But it's there's something close. along those lines there, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, the the uh, the version we watched last night was actually the the new remaster, and I was really happy to see that they managed to make it like to revitalize the image because it looks fantastic. Yeah, but it still maintains a lot of that grit and grime and and the 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 nasty colors and stuff that makes it um, so unique. I think. Definitely. But uh, yeah, so we'll play the trailer for that real quick, and then we will uh, come back and talk about it. What happened was true. (laughs) The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. All right. Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, directed by Toby Hooper, written by Kim Henkel and Toby Hooper, starring Marilyn Burns, Edwin Neal, Gunnar Hansen, and a lot of low-angle butt shots. (laughs) Amanda, what happens in this movie? When Sally hears that her grandfather's grave may have been vandalized, she and her paraplegic brother, Franklin, set out with their friends to investigate. After a detour to their family's old farmhouse, they discover a group of crazed, murderous outcasts living next door. As the group is attacked one by one by the chainsaw-wielding Leatherface, who wears a mask of human skin, the survivors must do everything they can to escape. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so a few things you'll find in this movie include a face for every occasion, the worst fifth wheel of all time, mm-hmm. backless shirts, many mystery meat, mm-hmm. don't eat it, and questionable, oh, <laughs> questionable parenting. Yes. Uh, and I... Um... <laughs> We had previously gone talked about whether or not uh oh shoot what was it oh whether or not dead alive was the 
prime example of mm. questionable parenting, but I feel like this probably tops that. <laughs> <laughs> probably for now, at least. Yeah. Although, I mean, you know, as we'll talk about a little bit later, it's it's just a difference of cultures, really. <laughs> anyway. That's all this movie is really about. Yeah. It's just 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 a sense, essentially just a Texas Brady Bunch. Yeah, basically. So, um, last time we talked about House of the Devil, and one of the things we mm-hmm. talked about was uh, the fact that they use based on a true story at the beginning of it, um, when it's not actually based. House of the Devil is not based on anything that actually happened. It's just using it as sort of like an atmospheric thing, right? Um. I wanted to talk about that a little bit more again with this movie because they do the same thing, but they're 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 doing it essentially the same way they did it in uh, uh, House of the Devil because they're saying based on a true story. This one is actually going out of its way to say that the events of this movie actually happened, <laughs> which is not true. Yeah, but yeah, the, which is not true. The element of true story that is in this is that it's loosely ga- loosely uh based on the life of of not the life of but the the serial killer Ed Gein. Yes. Um but like very loosely. It's the same thing that Psycho was based on and he was in Wisconsin and he didn't actually kill a bunch. Of, I think he only killed like a couple people, right? He was more of a necrophile, uh, they can only... I think. Yeah, they could only they they only could prove two. Mhm. Uh but he was a great he was like a um a chronic grave robber. Right, right. And there's some questions about whether or not there were more people in there. And he he's more famously known for the skinning and wearing of skin suits, I think, right? Yes. Yeah, so that's yes. the thing. Specifically that... female, female yes. skinning, female skin mm, suits. Questionable parenting. Yeah, he wanted to uh, sort of become his mother, yes. shall we say. Um, and that seems to be the biggest element from that true story quote-unquote to be brought into this movie but how do you feel about the way that they use that here versus the way that they use it in house of the devil so it's 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 interesting for me because uh if if the folks listening to this don't know yet i'm a giant creep (laughs) um so like you're talking about ed gein and i'm like oh yeah the butcher of plainfield he killed the hardware store owner and this other lady and blah 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 like I already know all of this stuff mm-hmm. because I'm a horrible person. Um, You're just prepared. <laughs> extremely prepared. Like, I can even tell you that uh, the director also drew some inspiration from, oh, God, what is his name? Uh, now that I've brought it up, I will not be able to remember it. Sweeney Todd. Uh, no. Oh, Elmer Wayne Henley. Oh, I don't know that name. Uh, so he was the accomplice of a serial killer who was operating in, I think, the 60s or early 70s in Houston. Mm -hmm. Uh, He would help this man lure teenage boys and young men, uh, and then this man would torture, rape, and kill them. Fun. And he killed something like 30 people. Wow. And uh, Henley helped. So that was also part of the inspiration for like Leatherface and the family and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So clearly... I know all sorts of horrible, weird shit like that. Sure. <laughs> um, so maybe because of that, maybe because of my, uh, shall we say, unique background knowledge, I, I feel a little less bothered by the use of the sort of this is a true events 
tail, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Um, so, do you, so the fact that you know more of the true stuff, it doesn't bother you that they are using that as an, as an, ex, as a uh, cover for fake stuff? I, I think in, in the case of this movie, it doesn't bother me sure, as much. Sure. Because I think this movie is also saying a lot about just the climate of the world at the time mm-hmm. where we, you know, the serial killers were sort of a new thing in the 70s. Right. It, it was like, it, it felt like they were everywhere. Like most of the most famous serial killers in America were operating usually the late 60s into the 70s. Yeah, it's weird. So it? I've, Yeah, it is. It's very weird. And then when you add to that, like... Vietnam and Watergate and kind of the increasing awareness of like income inequality and mm-hmm. and racism and all of this stuff it just turns into this like overwhelmingly violent feeling period sure and i think the filmmakers of Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of capitalized on these more sensationalist uh, examples to to kind of drum up interest do you know what i mean yeah definitely yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like this falls under the same category as what I said about House of the Devil for me, where, where it's like they're using uh, – they like I said, they, they are more specifically claiming that what you are watching is something that actually happened. But, yeah. <laughs> but they are still doing it in a way where they're presenting sort of like a, a urban legend type thing. It's, it's, yeah. They're not they're – not, really trying to present the uh actual events of a historical thing that happened this is it's it feels very much like an urban legend something that you would tell to someone around a campfire that kind of thing um yeah i'm i'm trying i'm trying to parse out why for me it bothers me less in this movie than it did in house of the devil mm, mm. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I cuz you know i've i've noticed <laughs> it bothers me differently for different movies as well. Um, I can't think of any exact examples off the top of my head, but I've definitely seen a movies. I've definitely seen a few movies where it's it's been said based on a true story, and then I was kind of like, ah, that wasn't really. I can't believe that they used that for this, knowing how much they changed. But on the other hand, I've like I've watched movies where I did know how much they changed and didn't care. Like I still thought it yeah. it, it was totally fine. <laughs> Um, so I yeah. think it's it's probably instance to in- instance. I I feel like generally, I think I said this last week too. So I'm, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but I don't think they necessarily owe you the truth if they say they're telling you a true story. But I think it's I, I that's just me. I think it's definitely a gray area. Yeah, it, I mean it's it's definitely a gray area for me. Mm. I feel like I'm, I don't know. I I feel like maybe I'm a little inconsistent about it. Like maybe I'm harder on certain movies than I am on others. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah. The op- the opening of this movie after the the uh, the credits is is pretty. Uh, they get you in, and it it's pretty effective right away. I made the mistake of watching this as i was finishing dinner and so those those opening <laughs> like quick photograph shots of the, the corpses and oh, stuff oh yeah not really great while you're eating macaroni and cheese 
Probably not. But it, I mean, it's <laughs> they are very iconic. Like the sound of that camera. <clears throat> yeah. The uh, um, the the close-ups of the bodies. That opening shot of the the corpse on uh, you know, positioned on the on the tombstone and stuff. It's really mm-hmm. really iconic. But the thing that has always been weird to me about this movie is I feel like the opening like ten minutes kind of feel really disconnected from the rest of it and but by the opening 10 minutes to, I, I know you mean that initial the sort of crawl with with the you know in whatever time and whatever town based on a true story like all, all of that plus the camera flashes plus the desecrated corpses mm-hmm. On in the in the cemetery. I think it's, is, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I feel like everything that has to do with the cemetery has always felt okay. kind of disconnected. And mm. I think the reason that is, I think I kind of parsed it out in my uh, as I was watching it last night, is that the thing that's one of the great things about this is that the atmosphere level is so thick that it sort of supersedes the story a little bit. Um, yeah, oh yeah. And I've never found that I've never found the cemetery stuff, whether it's the opening scene or the uh, uh, where they stop to go see if their grandfather's grave is okay. I've always found that to to be like kind of superfluous to the rest of the story. Mm. But it sets the tone so well, and it really kind of gives you a, a an inroad into this this creepy area of texas that they're in, that that they're in that it's it's tough for me to want to imagine the movie without it yeah and, and you know when i watch the opening the opening section of this movie it's interesting because the, the movie that we've watched prior to this that most reminds me of it is frankenstein okay sure yeah I can because see that. because yeah there's that sort of like uh you know he, he, the the person who stands up on the stage and says, "Oh, this movie is going to frighten you. Yeah, it might definitely. even terrify you." Mm-hmm. And then you get the grave robbing scene, mm-hmm. and that's kind of like I I I don't know if it's intentional, but that's the echoes I get when I watch this movie. Yeah, I I had never thought about that before, but that's a really good point. I I would be. I wonder if anybody's ever asked the director about that. That's a really interesting <laughs> parallel to make. <laughs> I mean, it. I just, it, it feels very, it just, it just immediately when I was watching it, it just came to the forefront for me where it was like, oh yeah, this is, this is like a classic monster movie in a way. Yeah, definitely. And I, I you could argue that Leatherface is a similar monster to Frankenstein in, in, in some ways. Like he is, he, he doesn't appear on, on first watch, he doesn't appear to be a very sympathetic monster. But yeah. he kind of is. <laughs> he kind of is in his own very strange way. Yeah. Uh, but we can get into him a little bit later as well. Um, but yeah, it gives you a nice intro to this weird time. Uh, it does feel unfortunately dated. But uh, uh, I think it's interestingly interesting looking enough where you can kind of ignore that. Because um, the kids... The kids in the van are just like there's no getting around these 1970s <laughs> teens who are all played by like 28 year olds. But do you want to? Eh, no, probably not. Yeah, like I, I, I don't really. There, there's something about this era 
of horror movie for me that even though I know now as an adult intellectually, it's it's obviously very dated. There's mm-hmm. no arguing that. Mm-hmm. There's just, there's something about it to me that feels like, oh no, this is just what horror movies were like up until I was an adult. Sure. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So they, they feel weirdly timeless to me in their own way. Yeah. And it's interesting because like they're, they're picking a, they're doing what these movies uh, would do more in, say, like the 80s and 90s with where they are almost intentionally dated because they are trying mm-hmm. to sit more in the current time. Yeah. You know, like I remember when we talked about Scream. We talked about that a little bit, how Scream feels really dated, but it's kind of on purpose because it's they want it to feel like it's kids in the 90s. Yes. And that's... Yeah. I feel like you can feel a lot of that in this. I feel like you feel a lot of that in uh, Halloween as well. And in all of the other, you know, Friday the 13th and and the Freddy movies, they all feel like they are going out of their way to almost be a little dated as to seem a little more hip at the time. Well, yeah. And and I also think that there's something about the the zeitgeist of of the time in which a lot of those movies have been have been created. Mm -hmm that really determines the sort of mood and the themes behind the movie itself. Right, right. Like, I I think this movie feels very much like it takes place in the 70s, and it should because a lot of what it's kind of grappling with on on another level is that sort of disillusionment post-1960s, like, hippies, peace and love, and then you move into the 70s where it's, it's war and it's scandal and it's serial killers and it's horror. Mm. And so I, I think a lot of those movies are sort of, they're dated because they're trying to say something about the time in which they were created. Yeah. And it's the way that they, I think, I think the most um, masterful thing about this movie is how much story they they give you without actually giving you much exposition at all. Even yeah. even as far as characters go, you, there's not a lot of like you don't really understand, or they don't tell you what a lot of the character relationships are, but you understand them because of their interactions. And right. I feel like this might be the most successful slasher movie as far as the kind of kids it presents, because the stuff that they're doing in this movie. <clears throat> You know, doing the uh, they're driving in the the VW bus kind of thing. They're one of them is in yeah. astrology. They feel like they are a hangover of the sixties. Yeah, and, yeah, they do. You know, You're I think right. I think they probably if they're smoking pot. I assume I can't remember if, if they actually do, but I would just they're at some point they're smoking pot, even if it's not on screen. Right. I I was saying <laughs> I was thinking as I was watching it, they give that hitchhiker. Way too much rope, and I can only assume that they st- they let him stick around as long as they do because they assumed at some point he was going to offer them drugs. He's going to give them weed, yeah, yeah. No, and, and kind of going along with what you're saying, one one of one of our lovely patrons on the chat the other night was saying that um, something they appreciated about this movie was that there's not the sort of like virgin, uh, the virgin gets to live sure. and like. All of that. And yeah, that's, that's, it kind of to me ties in with what you're saying, where it's like, we're not seeing any of these teenagers do anything super far in any direction. Like, 
Nobody is a caricature of the virgin. Right. Nobody is like a caricature of the slut. Uh, there's not like the one jock guy who's a super douche. You know? yeah. Like they're they're just they're just teenagers. They're just friends who are like going on this road trip together. Yeah, and if you want to use the sort of metaphor you were talking about a little bit earlier about it being uh, a a post 60s reaction you know you've mm-hmm. it it feels it feels more natural that they're picking these types of kids because they are emblematic of that sort of like late 60s early 70s culture that is still yeah. a little bit hippie but still but kind of <laughs> yeah. moving away from that but they still got one foot in that in that era and then they all just get viciously murdered by a monster from the 70s yeah. And it's <laughs> yeah. I, it's why I think it feels a little more honest than the way that they they write these kids in later movies for a lot of them because they do become those caricatures that don't really mean anything other than we need a, a, a like five different kinds of kids to kill. You know, right. whereas it it does it does feel more of a piece and you are getting more story from these characters without them talking about their background uh yeah where i don't even know where they're from you know i know that they're not from here but i don't know where they're from <laughs> um uh, supposedly within driving distance i guess yeah but uh you know <laughs> Maybe. uh like the the you the character relationships are actually really well um portrayed without giving you a lot of this information like the the uh the character franklin the the one in the wheelchair um you get a lot out of him just by watching what he does. He never talks about the yeah. fact that he's crippled. You, he, you, yeah. you never find out why he never has like a monologue about how he feels like he's a fifth <laughs> wheel or anything, but you do get that right. scene where everybody else is going into the house and having a good time at the abandoned house. And he's like struggling to just get up to the front door. And it's, it's fairly heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, so uh, I have a lot to say about Franklin. Let's hear it. Like, okay. Um, Point one. Dumb hair. <laughs> His hair is fine. <laughs> uh, no, but it's so first, before I get into Franklin, I, I do want to say that I, I feel like the more movies you and I have, have talked about mm. during this podcast, the more I notice that both of us tend to agree that the movies where you get less explicit exposition mm. and more sort of implied exposition or exposition via sort of character development, mm-hmm. we sort of have, I, I feel like we universally are like more of a fan of that. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Like, I, and I think that says something interesting about horror movies in general, where it's like the ones that sort of labor over explaining and setting up almost suffer for it the most right well i think part of that is because um you know unlike a drama or a detective story or even an action movie horror movies to me have always felt the most like uh campfire stories that's kind of like what they're going for and they are the most successful ones usually have the least amount of plot and I don't mean that in a bad way. 
It's just like they don't <laughs> yeah. they don't get belabored by plot details and like story twists and you know all all this other kind. There's some of them have that stuff in it. Some of them are great at it. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of the really great ones know how to temper that stuff and and try to hit you with more of the atmosphere. And I when I say atmosphere, I don't mean like they used a fog machine. You know, it's just the the <laughs> The story, the story they're telling you is a lot more visceral and a lot more um, emotional than it is. Let's take a minute to have these characters talk about their feelings or, or where they're coming from. You know what I mean? It's it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah and de- like for for me, I find it so. so uh, I am in my daytime life. I am an editor. Uh, so for me, it's always a matter of good editing and i Mm. and i don't mean that in like a film in a film school way like it can be that as well good visual editing but i mean like story wise like good or at least what we've been (laughs) kind of saying are are the the horror movies that we tend to favor have good editing in that they've sort of sifted out and parsed out the things that aren't necessary right to tell the story within the bounds that you're being presented with. Right, right. Yeah. And it's really hard it's really hard to do that. Oh yeah. Because you know <laughs> I'm horrible at doing it in my own right. Yeah, I know. That's the trick, right? Because <laughs> yeah. you know, you I I've I've noticed that I'm in the middle of, of uh writing a graphic novel at the moment and it's one of those things where, you know, you have so much stuff in your brain about the story and you're you'd be like, oh, wait, I need to put the, I got to make sure people know this. I got to make sure people know this. And then you kind of take a step back and you go, okay, I know that stuff. People, not everybody needs to know everything that I have in my head. It's yeah. a matter of kind of uh, directing them to that point more than it is making sure you put it all out on the table. You know, it's so it, it is difficult because you want to tell people yeah. as much story as you can, as you can have. But, oh, absolutely. And there's all those details you come up with yourself in your own head that are great details to you. Right, right. You're like, oh, this is this, this is like, this is an important part of, of what makes this person whatever. And it's like, sometimes we don't need to know why they're kind of an angry person. Sometimes we just need them to be angry. Right. And I think this movie is a great example of figuring out how to do that well. Because the yeah. relationship between Franklin and Sally... They don't spend a lot of time talking to each other, but the stuff that they say, it, like, you instantly know what the connection between the two of them. They're brother and sister, but you kind of, yeah. like, instantly know the kind of dynamic that they have. And it's mm-hmm. actually, it's kind of astounding that they manage to get across so much with so little. Yeah, yeah. There's that one uh, scene between the two of them when everyone else is kind of so the other couple i, th- I want to say like kirk and pam sure i think <laughs> i like how my role is to remember the character names well my, um, my role is to not so i can say character names don't really matter <laughs> you, you are so right you can you are right kirk and pam are <laughs> oh, the names i did okay. just look yes kirk kirk and pam uh they've disappeared for a while uh sally's boyfriend who i think is jerry goes to look for them and then sally and franklin are left alone at the van Mm -hmm. and and it's kind of like sunset it's getting late it's been a long weird day and they have this interaction where 
Franklin is sort of like, are you mad at me? And she's like, no, no, no. Look, it's fine. I'm just, look, I'm just tired. I'm worried. I just want to go. No, I'm not mad at you specifically. It's fine. And then he's like, you didn't actually want me to come, did you? Mm. (laughs) And there's just, there's all these things where like in between the lines and, and in their body language and their reactions, you're reading like years of history between the two of them. Yeah, definitely. Where, you know, he's sort of always been the pity invite. Right. And his friends have always just been the people that are Sally's friends. Mm Mm-hmm. Like that kind of vibe, you you get it without that needing to be spelled out, and which I think is is very well done. Yeah, and I think it's a it might be it's either that same scene or or it's later in the movie after they realize crazy shit's starting to happen. But they have that moment where uh, um, they're trying to figure out what to do, and Franklin says, "Well, you could push me down the hill or up the hill," and she just like loses it for a second. She's like, "Franklin, I just yeah. I can't do it. I can't do it." And it's yeah, like, and then they start fighting over the flashlight. Yeah. They're like literally both grabbing it and pulling it back and forth. And it's like, yep, that's kids yeah. fighting over toys at home. And those yeah. those couple scenes combined with the way that Franklin reacts or uh, Franklin has trouble uh, going into the house. And even the way Franklin uh, is kind of uh, received by everybody else. You get a lot out of that. You you instantly yeah. know what those relationships are. And I think it's it's really, really well done. So can I ask you, I, I have a, a way that when I watch this movie where I see Franklin falling in a very interesting sort of middle ground. Okay. Between the... Uh, the hitchhiker and, and the chainsaw murdering family... <laughs> And the quote-unquote, like, normal teenagers. Mm -hmm. I think there's an argument to be made there for how Franklin as a character is almost sort of aligned with the hitchhiker and Leatherface and and that end of things. He's definitely a lot closer. Like, if if Leatherface hadn't chopped him up and they got to talk for a couple minutes, they'd probably be buddies, yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one who sort of reads it that way because... Every time I watch this, I, I, I feel more and more where I'm kind of like, Franklin kind of is the only one who engages with and, and seems to try to connect with the hitchhiker. Yeah. And then after, like, they both have knives. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's, Franklin and a- is a lot, is is really enamored by the slaughterhouse stories that the hitchhiker has and yeah after they yeah, drop well, him they, off and he wipes his blood on the van that becomes like an object of that he focuses in on absolutely and and franklin clearly has a uh i don't know if i want to say a fascination or more of a connection with this this side of his family mm. where he seems really fixated on the idea of his grandfather working in the slaughterhouses. Right, right. And the hitchhiker also talks about his grandfather working in the slaughterhouses. Yeah. Yeah, there's Which I always thought was Yeah, there's like a there's like a parallel structure for the two of them. Definitely. Where they're both like even like visually they're set apart from other characters where the hitchhiker has that that birthmark on his face that mm-hmm. looks like blood. And Franklin is paraplegic in a wheelchair. Like right. they're both kind of set apart from like quote unquote normal people. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just I feel like there's there's a lot of there's a lot of lines there. Even the fact that they both there's scenes where they both get kind of um pissed off at the people around them right. and mock them and then start blowing raspberries. And uh Franklin also likes to just suck on a sausage link like a cigar for some reason, which is one of the most disturbing things in the movie. Which, by the way, Clay, do you remember where they get that sausage? Uh, it's from the gas the gas station, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember who runs the gas oh, station? Oh, I sure right? do. Yeah. <laughs> that, does, that does not make what I said untrue. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm just, I, I would like to put scare quotes around the word sausage. Yeah, no, I've thought about that. <laughs> I would love, I would really hope that they have a little bit more uh, effort that they put into their meat than to just, you know, pass off uh, whatever that might have been, whatever piece of anatomy that might have been as a as a sausage. Well, I'm not, I'm not saying that we're talking it's strictly a phallic piece of anatomy. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying I think it's people. Yo, definitely, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's people. Uh but yeah, the way he just like has it in his mouth, just like just kind of like <laughs> that really bothered you. It does. That, that bothered it's you gross. Even, even when we were chatting you, the other night with, with everybody, you were like, I hate this part. Could you imagine <laughs> if you were at a cookout and you were sitting in a circle of people <laughs> and one of those people just had a like a hot dog just like tucked in to their like their lips? <laughs> Like it was like chewing tobacco or something and just like, you know, you're watching them kind of like move it around with their mouth like a cigar. Like that would, that's disgusting. Well, especially where, where it looked like kind of uncooked. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like it, it didn't look like it was. It's like the, the casing is open. So he's like sucking it. Yeah. It's disgusting. <laughs> anyway, speaking yeah, of, it's, speaking it's pretty, of disgusting things. Uh. Leatherface, we haven't talked about him at all yet, really. Oh, I love him. Um, <laughs> I did want you to expand on this because you <laughs> said it last night and it was it was too interesting not to come back to. Uh, oh, I, boy. I, I was saying that I thought that Leatherface is really, he's the only slasher villain, save for Freddy Krueger, who actually has a character. And mm-hmm. it's much like everything else in the movie. It's not the kind of character where it's like, oh, you find out midway through the movie that his he's used to be a child murderer who died and now has come back as a demon. It's not like that, but it's like <laughs> watching Leatherface and how he acts and how he interacts with his family. You get a, a sense of what his character is. And mm-hmm. it's a lot more interesting than most of the other slashers who are just sort of like faceless monoliths. Yeah. And what makes him really interesting to me is how mundane he is. Absolutely. Because he's, uh, uh, he's not like he's, there's no revenge built into what he's doing. He's got no powers. He kills people. Even when you watch him killing people, it almost, it seems like a job. It's not like he's yeah. He's not like uh, Freddy where he's getting any sort of like thrill out of it. He's not like Jason where he's kind of reveling in in the method or anything. When he kills those mm-hmm. first two people, you see him like kind of being annoyed that he has to lift this body up and like hack <laughs> through the bones yep. and stuff. And he's 
Oh, yeah. It's like a job to him. And also later on when you see the family, you realize that he's he's a subordinate in this family. Like he's not he, – even he's he's – she's basically shit on by everybody else in the family. He's not like the cool guy. He's not – Oh, yeah. He's not the, the alpha of his family. He's just sort of yeah, like – Yeah, he's not the main murderer. Yeah, yeah. He's just like the uh, probably – mentally impaired uh muscle essentially mm, i would argue with that and the thing that you said that i found really interesting was you said that you found leatherface to be the most sensual of the slasher villains which i, oh, I absolutely. know i would love to hear you explain that but i thought it was funny <laughs> because my first <laughs> image was like leatherface in a smoking jacket and like with a giant glass of brandy like welcoming you to the slaughter room Okay, so you're wrong on several levels. Word because play. it would be le- it would be Leatherface in like a bubble bath <laughs> with a big fucking glass of wine. Mm. Like like so here here's my other like unified theory of this movie. Um with with the murder family just for shorthand. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, there's lots of talk about Grandpa. Yes. And, and and how Grandpa's the best killer. And the hitchhiker gives this whole sort of family history of, like, my grandfather worked in the slaughterhouse. My brother worked in the slaughterhouse. I worked in the slaughterhouse. And then you meet their father. You never meet their mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a supposedly female corpse in the attic with Grandpa. Mm-hmm. But, like. Who's to say? There's no. Right. And there's no talk about Grandma. The only sort of feminine figure in that whole family is Leatherface. Yeah, good point. Who is always in an apron mm-hmm. and like usually in the kitchen. Yep. And is kind of just annoyed that people keep showing up in their house like making messes and that they have to do more chores. Yes, yeah. Like there's there's very much this kind of uh, long-suffering Marge Simpson vibe. <laughs> well, and he even... <laughs> when he uh, uh, in the scene towards the end, when they've got Sally tied to the chair and stuff, and he's like, "quote unquote" making dinner, he is yeah. he is dressed like a like a housewife. Absolutely. And uh, later on, when they sit down to dinner, he has put on like a, a suit and tie, but he has another mask on that is very overly made up, like a like absolutely. A woman. Yeah, and I think that that's part of that's the tie back to Ed Gein, who mm-hmm. had that obsession with his own mother. Yeah. Uh, but I think that there is that sort of like, if you're if you're in this dis- extraordinarily dysfunctional family, like weirdly Leatherface is like the homemaker. Mm. Like their father is the one who goes out and works. Yeah, yeah, and you know works at the gas station and, and, and whatever. Uh, the hitchhiker brother is kind of, you know, often wandering and sort of trying to strike out on his own and, and has a lot of rebellious ideas. And and Leatherface is the one who's like at home. Yeah. Taking care of the house. Yeah. He's building um, all the furniture. He's, he's exactly. making sure <laughs> the all the decorations. He's making sure all the bones are on the floor in the right order. Right. Taking care of the chicken that's in the birdcage. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, the normal stuff. Yeah. Uh, but but there is something because of that. It's 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 a character that's very rooted in the mundane and the sort of like day to day physicality of like 
doing chores and preparing and butchering meat, which in this case is people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's there's something very like. Leatherface reacts to the world around him. Right. Like when things happen or when when he's annoyed or sort of like it's there's there's not that sort of almost supernatural remove that like Jason and Michael Myers and 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 the sort of franchise killers like that have where they're they've almost moved beyond being human. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Like you might want to argue that Leatherface isn't exactly like a normal human, but is still very much a physical and, and mortal being. Right. Like even when he hits his own leg with his chainsaw, yes, it, yes, it, yeah. very visceral reaction. You know, like there's not a lot of like Leatherface doesn't just kind of appear out of nowhere in places that it couldn't be explained that he got to. Like, he has to run. Right. He's a he good runner. He has to runner. run. He, he's a very good he's runner. A, he's very a, fit. He's a, he can run pretty good for a big guy. He has to run a lot. And he's right on her tail the whole time. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but but yeah, he he's he's very rooted in, in an actual reality that resembles our own. Right. And I think what part of what makes him so scary, and the whole situation so scary, but him, if we're talking about him specifically is that kind of uh, going off of what we were saying about how much you get out of how little they give you, how much character you get of how, how much character you get out of how little they give you uh, as mm-hmm. far as exposition and stuff. It makes him a lot scarier because you can see a character. Whereas yeah. if you're watching Halloween, they go out of their way to talk about how Michael Myers is like this blank slate and he's like this unknowable thing and <laughs> yeah. same with jason nobody knows anything about jason freddie you know people know stuff about him but that's you know whatever but uh but with leatherface <laughs> depending on which movie right with leatherface it's like no you can watch this and get the sense that this is a person who is doing this you there is a yeah. character there to be understood and that sort of makes him that much more unknowable because there is it doesn't allow you that disconnect that you have with those other characters because of their you know uh supernaturalness or their how much they talk about them being just like evil incarnate or whatever right you leatherface is ostensibly just a guy yeah and there and there's something relatable about his attitude towards his family mm. um like he, he's very much like I'm, i i i don't mean to belabor my like weird like gender queer points and whatever but like he is very much like the sort of maternal figure mm. in this homemaker in a very weird way like a very twisted and sadistic way which is i think what part of what makes him so scary yeah, yeah. is that like he's this horrifying enormous hulking male murderer in the place of where you'd usually see like a mom yeah, definitely which which is like a huge subversion of every maternal trope and instinct which is just like viscerally disturbing yeah absolutely um but he he like wants to please his family mm-hmm. like he's not like the hitchhiker is sort of the rebellious son 
And Leatherface is not. He's the dutiful son. Right, right. And and there's that moment where um, I think it's like Sally's boyfriend comes into the house looking for the other couple and he finds Pam in the freezer and he gets attacked and he, he, he sort of kind of like half escapes. Mm-hmm. Um, and after all of it, like... <laughs> Leatherface like goes is like looking for him and like goes and like sits down for a minute by the window yes. and kind of puts puts his head in his hands like oh fuck dad is gonna be so mad at me yeah like it's such a like clear moment of this character being like shit I really fucked up and and without any words and it's it's like more disturbing because it's such a universal feeling yeah like we've all been in that moment. And to have that moment where you, like, relate to and sympathize with somebody who's not just a killer, but who looks that monstrous. Mm. Well, well, well. Now who's sympathizing with the psycho killers, Amanda? (laughs) I'm fine with it. Um, But, yeah, it's, it's sort of – it puts something on the viewer where it's like you catch yourself in these little moments of, of feeling empathy or sympathy or amusement when you watch Leatherface that then makes you recoil against yourself. Mm. And I think the other thing that they do really well, too, is they present him as this singular monster. Uh, but then you find out not only is he one of many, he is like the low man on the totem pole. You know, that, yeah. that, that's, that's a really interesting turn that they give you where it's like, nope, there's not one monster. There's five of them. And the other ones are a lot smarter than he is. Yeah. And the more mundane looking that they are, the more dangerous right. they are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you did yeah. bring up Grandpa, which is next to. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the creepiest part of this movie for me has always been the sequence when they're trying to get Grandpa to kill Sally with the hammer. It is so oh fucking God. weird. It is so creepy. <laughs> like, her reactions are so on point. I can't think of anything else you would do other than, in that situation other than scream. But I do also feel like the the rationale of, of having Grandpa kill the girl because he's the best is, like, the same thought process that Vince McMahon uses when he puts The Undertaker in matches now. <laughs> Where it's like, yeah, he was the best. He's the he's gonna be fine. And then they go out and they and he you know almost breaks in half because he can't move anymore. Look, look, don't shit talk the taker. I know. I should have said Goldberg. <laughs> you should have said Goldberg. But that you know, myself and your dog. Yeah, we will both yell yeah, at you because we both fan. love the Undertaker. Um, but that sequence, I think you know, I've talked about this in the past too. Uh. Movies like Evil Dead really nail it because they once the ball gets rolling, it just gets keeps rolling and keeps rolling and keeps rolling. And I feel like they do that really well in this movie where even though there Mm -hmm. is a few bits where it slows down a little bit, it's pretty high tension for the last like 30 minutes of the movie. That whole sequence at the end when she's tied to the chair in the kitchen is just harrowing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It is intense. Um, and when she busts out of there, you know, that final run to the, the highway is, is crazy and all the way it's, it's also really interesting how, how close Leatherface is to her, like distance wise, because they Mm -hmm. never really do that in these movies. The killer is always like steps out from behind something to surprise you. 
Exactly. In, in this one, he's like, you can see him getting closer and closer and closer, closing the gap to the point where yeah. the only th- reason that she doesn't get killed is because he trips and falls on his own chainsaw, essentially. <laughs> right, right, which is enough. another – yeah, it's another point in sort of the the, the, the fact that he is still human. Yeah, definitely. Like he's he's horrifying, but he's not supernatural, which makes him almost more horrifying. Yeah, and I, you know, I, uh, this came out in 1974, and mm-hmm. they really didn't have another slasher, like high profile slasher, till Halloween, which was what, like 77, I think. Was yeah. was it that late? Um, I think so. But you had this one, and the same year, also had. Uh, Black Christmas, which is mm. you haven't seen yet, which uh, I'm tempted to put my thumb on the scale, but I won't because we'll get to we'll get to that <laughs> one eventually. But yes, we will. You kind of uh, where Halloween sort of cements the 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 slasher type movie uh, tropes going forward. Mm-hmm. This one and Black Christmas both really kind of give the uh uh the basis for what that stuff is based on that's what a basis is clay um (laughs) and especially we we were talking a little bit about about the final girl thing and i sally is probably she's probably number two for me well she might even be number one she and uh nancy from friday the third uh Nightmare on I Elm knew Street you were going to say Nancy. Are my two favorite final girls because because I love Nancy because of how proactive she is, and I love Sally because <laughs> she's the kind of final girl where it you can a- actively feel like she has lived through something and succeeded and escaping it. Whereas I think a lot of times uh, I, I have I just recently watched through the. Uh, f- the Friday the 13th movies. And mm-hmm. the weird thing about those movies is the the main girl usually girl like doesn't yes. even know Jason is a thing, let alone he, that he's killing people <laughs> until like the last 15 minutes of the movie for like most of them. And it it kind of yeah. takes away that that element of oh, man, she was put through the ringer and she survived the th- this thing. We just watched like 90 minutes of her, you know, surviving with a capital S. It takes that away because she, the the girls in those movies tend to only be in danger really for a sh- short period of time. Whereas in this one, you, you really feel like Sally has, has been pulled down to the depths and manages to escape yeah. and, and, uh, and swim back to the, the surface. Oh yeah, no, definitely. And and there was something um again in our chat the other night with some of the patrons, we were talking about um oh, like who's scarier? Mm. Like Freddy, Jason, or Leatherface. And and somebody threw out their oh, oh does the xenomorph from Alien? Yeah. Like does this does the xenomorph rank in this? And I didn't get ba- I didn't get to go back to it because we were all kind of talking. But apparently, Ridley Scott loved Texas yes. Chainsaw Massacre yes. and used some of this to inspire how he approached Alien, mm-hmm. which I think you can see the most clearly in um, Ripley. Yeah, 
in 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 Sigourney Weaver's Ripley, where you know you start with sort of this ensemble cast, and they're thrust into this situation where they cannot escape. They have to just deal with what they've been dealt. Yeah, and then it's only kind of slowly as other characters are sort of picked off that you start to realize who the main character is, who who right. the potential survivor right. is. Um, and in this, it's in, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's Sally and in Alien, it's Ripley. Mm. And there is that sort of gradual, like peeling back of the layers of the other characters who don't have the, the strength that she right. does. Yeah. 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 I would probably, uh, amend what I said about Sally a little bit in that I, I feel like she's the most viscerally satisfying final girl. But she doesn't. Yeah. She doesn't have quite the fight in her that someone like Ripley or someone like Nancy does, because she's just sort of she's being fairly passive. Uh, and I, I don't. Yeah. I don't mean like she's choosing to be passive, but it's like she's not. <laughs> I think she's only. She only has one option. <laughs> yeah, she she basically runs and she screams. Yeah, but she still has to figure out how to get out of these situations and stuff. So it's it, it does feel like she's being pulled down to the depths and she comes back out in a way that a lot of the other ones don't because usually they get bogged down in plot. Um, yeah. So, so I, ha- I have to interject to ask, uh, I notice you have been uh, leaving Laurie Strode out of all of this. Yeah. I don't know. Laurie's fine. <laughs> what? Come on. I don't know. She's fine. She's like, She's responsible for small children, and she still gets them and herself out of it. Yeah, I guess. Come on. We can come back to that when we watch Halloween. I haven't watched Halloween in a couple of years, so. (laughs) I'm excited for when we get to do that one. I I don't know. Well, we'll save that conversation for another show. um, Yeah, we should. We should. We should save it. So uh, just to touch on a couple things real quickly, uh, there's not much music in this movie. I actually was reading that. Yeah. Uh, the soundtrack actually contains no sounds from a musical instruments. It's all sounds that one would hear inside a slaughterhouse. And uh, okay, that's that is awesome to know yeah. because half of my notes are like, "This sound is terrifying." Right? Yes. What is it? Yeah. <laughs> like, I have so many notes where it's just like, I either just just the the sounds that they add in for effect. Or the way that they handle the sort of sound effects of, of the items and, and people and, and what have you in the scene. Yeah. So well done. Like, there's that moment where um, Pam is, is stumbling through the house looking for her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And she falls, she trips and falls into the room with all the bones and the bone furniture and decorations. Yep. And there's the chicken in the birdcage. And it, it, it just sits, the scene just sits with her laying in the sort of like feathers and bones and detritus and her sort of looking around the room and realizing what she's looking at. Right. And and the only real soundtrack is the chicken clucking. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of gets stretched out and heightened to this point where it sounds almost like laughter. Yeah, you had mentioned that last night, and I had never thought about that. But yeah, that's a really it, it does sound like laughter, and it's really fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, and it's re- that, it's really and there's a there's a lot of moments like that yeah. in this movie. That whole sequence, that whole first sequence with uh, Pam and and Kirk, are probably the the best 
opening kills in any horror movie. Like the oh yeah the Kirk getting hit in the head with the hammer and then dragged behind the <laughs> the, the sliding door is like number one all time. And it, the music or the sound plays really heavily into that too because there is no music really like uh, soundtrack music, but. When that when Kirk gets killed, that first kill happens. When they soon as he slams that door shut, they play like this really low bass note, and it just yeah. it hits you. It's so good. Oh yeah. And the when and- Sally not Sally when Pam, uh, runs out of the house, and then Leatherface just like leans out of the door and grabs her and pulls her down like a shark, almost like pulling somebody down into yeah. water. It's awesome. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Well, and, and don't forget that Kirk, when he's killed, he's killed by a sledgehammer blow to the back of the head. Right, yeah. Which which is how they talk about the, the, the cattle yep. in the slaughterhouse being killed. Yeah, someone, someone last night on the chat suggested that there was a reading of this as a, like a vegetarian parable. Um, and, you know, I hadn't really thought about that. But after he said that, I was like, yeah, I could see that because uh, yeah. <laughs> everybody is treated like apparent, like, like cattle, essentially. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's definitely an interesting way to approach it, where it's like, if this is how we treat the animals that we eat, and this family is a family of cannibals who thinks it's okay to eat other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely parallels there. Um, yeah. Uh, the placement on the list, number nine ninety five. How do you feel about that placement? I mean, all right, so I I always do this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When we talk about the ratings, number one is high and number 200 is low. Yes, it's like golf. (laughs) I hate golf. Bloody golf. Um, I I mean, I I think this is too low. Yeah, I agree. I just don't... I, I don't understand how... I understand how different people don't like this. Like our our friend Laura joined us the other night on the chat and watched the movie and she gave this a good shot and she was just like, I watched this. This is not for me. Right, right. And I understand that. I understand and respect that. But I also feel like in terms of just like the zeitgeist, the effect and the influence it had on horror movies from the point where it came out from that point on this this should be higher on the list than 95 yeah this for me should be top 10 at least um you know i i i I hate to do this every time but i'm looking at the top 10 and it's like (laughs) the top the top 10 is it it makes sense in like a really abstract kind of way but it doesn't Yeah, if make, you put a lot of conditions on it. Yeah, but it doesn't make sense. It makes sense like it makes sense like an Oscar ceremony or something where the top 10 are all like <laughs> lifetime achievement award movies or movies that came out in the last like 2 years. Because Yeah, yeah, which is a, which is a very weird way of of making this list because in another two years, some of those movies aren't going to seem so great anymore. Right. And when I I say lifetime achievement award, I mean like from before 1950 
Or, sorry, 1960. <laughs> like Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. For, in the top 10, you've got Night of the Hunter, which is 1955, Bride of Frankenstein, 1935, King Kong, 1933, Nosferatu, 1922, uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, 1920. That's four of the top 10. And then you've got Us, Get Out, A Quiet Place, and The Friggin' Invisible Man, which is a, which is a great movie. <laughs> I don't think it's the 10th best horror movie of all time. So so four of the movies are from before 1960. Four of them are from yeah. the last two years. And then you also have Alien and uh, maybe my counting was off because, <laughs> yeah, Alien seems to be the only one in between. Yeah. And, th- and then that's just that's a crazy like. 65 year span that we're just gonna kind of ignore yeah in the top 10 Uh, yeah i you know i'll just say i loved the invisible man from this year i would drop that in favor of texas chainsaw at the 10 spot in a heartbeat um but if you put we haven't even talked about the shining right yes uh, you know, I th- this is one where I think it's. I think it. I would put this higher than The Shining. I think this is on, on a hor- on a horror movie list. I agree. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and the rest of the top ten, it's like I I like a lot of these movies, but I think if I'm looking at my top five here, which is A Quiet Place, Nosferatu, Get Out, Cabin of Dr. Caligari, and Us, I'm putting Texas Chainsaw ahead of all of those. <laughs> I mean, so so here, my argument for the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which we will hopefully eventually do, is just that it really kind of launched the genre. Sure. Which is great. I absolutely think it should be recognized and watched and people should continue to, to kind of give it relevance because it, it did essentially create the scary movie horror movie genre in terms of a narrative form mm. but do i think it's a better movie right than the shining yeah <laughs> like no am i am i going to be more scared by texas chainsaw or cabinet of Arte caligari probably texas chainsaw although it's a caligari is a good movie that the, the no, two it's a, it's a very good movie the, the two silence that they put on here although is king Kong. i don't know if i can't remember i don't remember if king kong is silent but uh i think it is but uh nosferatu and caligari are both good picks to be on this list because those are both very yeah good. if you if you told me those were both in the top 20 yes yeah just purely in terms of their influence on the genre i i would be behind it yeah. but having it in the top five it, it's just it's sort of it, it really it really illustrates how this sort of weighted score in the uh, Rotten Tomatoes list is a little questionable. Yeah, I think of uh, I think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre like Black Sabbath, where <laughs> I I would love <laughs> to go back in time and see how people reacted the first time they saw this. I, I feel the same way about Black Sabbath, yeah. where it's like it's so different and such a yeah shocking ter- change from stuff that had come before it, where it's like you know there had been heavier music before. There had not been Black Sabbath. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's it's, it's like I, I have a lot of family who um like I I, I love the movie Jaws. Mm-hmm. It's probably one of my top two or three favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't think of it as a scary movie. Right. 
but I have family who, I mean, you know, they summered on the Cape. They, they like lived on the Cape when they were kids. They would just like spend the whole time in the sixties and seventies out on the Cape on the beaches. And Jaws is the most horrifying movie they've ever seen. Like to this day, my aunt cannot watch Jaws. It scares her too much. Yeah, definitely. And she is not an easily scared woman. Um, and so I understand it because it's like in that context when it came out, I absolutely get why it was that thing for her. But do I think overall in the history of all scary movies, it should be in the top 10 or 15? I honestly don't. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. You know, I feel like I could talk for two hours about Texas Chainsaw. I, we didn't even talk about how <laughs> how most of it takes place during the day and is somehow still scary because daytime horror Absolutely. is very hard to do. Uh, the idea that it's a you know essentially it's essentially like a uh, one of those cannibal movies, cannibal Holocaust movies, where somebody flies to. Yeah some jungle and gets eaten by a tribe of people that they didn't know existed that's basically what this movie is <laughs> only texas yeah um yeah or the influence on things like the x-files and that one oh, definitely. episode i mean the influence on everything oh, yeah. i mean you know this oh yeah between this and uh I, yeah man i'm really i'm really looking forward to doing black christmas with you because black <laughs> christmas is like the proto proto slasher movie and it has all of the elements, but not necessarily in the way that you're familiar with them. Mm. Um, like the 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 it has the idea of the final girl, but it's very much not the final girl that it that that trope turns into. Um, it's it's really interesting. It's it's a really cool movie, and uh, this is kind of this it. is kind of right there with it, where it's like it's it's a lot of recognizable stuff, but it's just presented in a way where it's before it got homogenized and before it got turned into like a formula. It's just a really great visceral, scary fucking movie. Yeah, totally agree. Well, I think that's going to do it for Texas. So what Chainsaw. are we watching next time? Clay? Well, let me hit the randomizer. <laughs> and we have landed on number 45, which as of right now, unless that changes between now and next week, <laughs> <laughs> is uh, a girl walks home alone at night, which is oh my god, it's not a movie I've seen. I have heard a lot about it, but it's it's one I've been wanting to watch. So I'm glad that I'm going to have an excuse to do so. I'm very excited to talk about this one. Good, I'm glad. Yeah, it seems yeah. seems pretty cool. So until that next time, thank you for listening. And if you'd like what you hear, if you want to give us a rating or review on iTunes, that would be great. Uh, thank you, Amanda. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Clay. And we will be back next time with A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Thanks, guys. Bye, everybody. Bye.